Well, good morning. It's my privilege to welcome you here to Central, where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. During this Advent season, we are going through a series called, What Child Is This?, asking, what does it really mean that Jesus took on flesh as the Son of God and entered this world to save us? Last week, we talked about what it means for the Word to be made flesh, that Jesus took on a real human life so that God's glory could be made visible, that we could look God in the eye and be reconciled to Him. Today, we're going to study Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. And if you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to flip open to Philippians 2, or if you want to use the Pew Bible in front of you, you can do that as well. Uh, if, if there's a child near you, open your Bible so that they can see and follow along in God's Word as well. While you're turning there, Paul begins Philippians 2 with a discussion about joy. He says something like, make my joy complete, or there's this thing that would happen if it was among you that would take my joy to an entirely new level, that it would be like a, a, a supernatural, otherworldly joy. And when he says something like that, it gets our attention, doesn't it? Who doesn't want that? Who wouldn't want to know uh, if there's a secret to having this otherworldly joy, especially at a holiday time? What, what could bump it up to this new level? When we think about that question, we may be tempted to believe that we'll have and be, be filled up with joy as other people serve us and we're made comfortable and everything's going great and that being served is the fuel for joy, but it isn't. Rather, the fuel for joy is serving one another. That's kind of counterintuitive. We may not think that what really will fill up our hearts and our lives with joy is giving ourselves away, but that's one of the hidden secrets about the Christian life. Service multiplies joy. When you give yourself to someone, you feel the blessing of, of serving them, and it, it's like a flywheel that, that makes your joy turn faster and get bigger. Do you want that? You want that kind of joy in your life. It's rooted in what we find here in this text, the attitude that is ours in Christ Jesus, the Word made servant. Jesus came as our servant. He came to a place that we might not expect and took up a role that we certainly wouldn't expect to save a people that nobody would expect. People like me and you. From God's perspective, what does that plan look like? Let's pray as we turn to God's Word. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would behold Jesus, the true and living Jesus, as he is alive among us right now. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand the way he lived his life, the way that his life is at work in us right now, that we might be servants of others. And so, Lord, as we come to you, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's good news of great joy. Glory to God in the highest. If you've been around church for a little while, you've heard Christmas sermons, Christmas themes, and sometimes they get familiar and it's hard to know how do we hear them afresh in another year. Sometimes it helps to look at it from a different viewpoint. So we're going to look at it through the viewpoint of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe this morning. C.S. Lewis's first book that he wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia series, and it paints this Christmas story into a Narnian world. You might remember the the Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and they were transported into the world of Narnia by going through the back of that wardrobe. As they passed through the back of it, they entered an entirely new world where there were talking animals and fantastical creatures and all the rest. There was even a lion named Aslan there. Now, Aslan is not strictly an allegorical character in these stories. But rather, Aslan does in the world of Narnia the kinds of things that Jesus does in our world. As the story goes, Edmund had been captured by the White Witch, and he was set free only after betraying his siblings. And despite his siblings forgiving him for what he had done to them, there were still consequences to his actions. In Narnia, there was a deep magic that said death must come to a traitor. Now, Maybe that troubles you this morning. It, it certainly troubled Lucy, the youngest, who asked Aslan, isn't there something that we can do about that deep magic? Can't you work against it, she asked. In short, the only way for Edmund not to forfeit his life would be if Aslan, the, the creator of Narnia, the ruler of Narnia, agreed to give his life in exchange for Edmund's. Aslan would, be, would indeed die to save Edmund, the betrayer, the traitor, and Aslan would die to protect all of Narnia from the effect of the evil that had taken root within. And the white witch was thrilled with this development of the death of Aslan. She thought, finally, I've won. I can be rid of him, have him behind us, and the whole thing about always winter and never Christmas, it's going to be forever like that. But oh, how surprised she would be. Susan and Lucy hid in the brush as Aslan was humiliated. He was marched to this stone table, a big giant rock where the the sacrifice would happen. And the, the, the servants of the white witch bound Aslan in these ropes and tied him down. They, they sheared his mane from him. How humiliating that must be for a lion to have his mane shorn off. They beat him, they tortured him, and finally, the white witch plunged her knife into Aslan's body, and he died. But the white witch had no idea that there was a deeper magic that would allow Aslan to be resurrected. She had no idea that because Aslan was alive again, that the always winter but never Christmas, it would begin to thaw, and there would be a new kind of life, a new quality of life in Narnia. She had no idea what was really going to happen. Lewis put it this way. He said, though the white witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time. 
But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. She had no idea what would happen when Aslan was made servant. Sometimes it helps for us to think about the story of Philippians 2 through the lens of what happened in Narnia. Because just like it was in Narnia, shocking, it's shocking for us to see the Son of God, the, the living King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator and sustainer of the whole universe, would leave his throne and take on our frail fresh and flesh and make himself a servant of betrayers and sinners. What we see in Philippians 2 is the word made servant, and he's exalted as that servant. And it allows us a window to see the, the deeper and the higher and the broader and the longer love of God that would drive him to do something like this for us. And it sets the glory of God on display to see the glory of the cross where the word was made servant. This truth also directs our own source of joy in this life. Verse 5, Paul said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's, that's a beautiful call tied to a beautiful truth. We are called to imitate Jesus, to have his mind, have his attitude, have the lifestyle of Jesus among us as the church, as the people of God. That, that servant-heartedness is our common life. And when that servant-heartedness takes root among the people of God, it causes joy to overflow. It makes joy complete. It's like that's the secret of this otherworldly supernatural joy is when we begin to look for ways to serve each other and live like Jesus. But Paul says here, it's not only our calling, but there's the power in that kind of life too because Jesus has taken up residence within us as his people. As the Lord dwells in us by the power of His Spirit, the gospel is alive in us. And through the Spirit, as, as John Calvin says, the Spirit gives to us what belongs to Jesus. The Word made servant frees us to live and empowers us to live as servants and find joy as we're serving one another. That's what will put your joy on overdrive in the holiday season, looking for a way to be a servant as Jesus has been a servant to you. What does that look like in this text? What are the things that Paul lays out for us as to how the word was made a servant? Three brief points for us this morning. First, the word was made servant by moving close. He got close. He, he drew near. He came into our world. He he's <clears throat> stepped into your neighborhood, as it were. Look at verse 6. It says, he was in the form of God, meaning it was a visible display of the identity of God. Jesus is all that God is. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's full of grace and truth and love and all the rest. Now, we might be tempted to look at the verb tenses in verse 6. It's past tense. And we may be, may be tempted to think he used to be that way, but when he took on flesh, he was that way no longer. But actually, the verb tense in the original is present. It's, it's a continual aspect of a Greek verb. So we could translate it, Jesus is and continues to be in the form of God. 
When Jesus took on flesh, he didn't divest himself of being God. He didn't lay aside his divinity when he took on flesh. He merely added a human nature, a human body to him so that we see that Jesus is now God and man joined together forever. He lived here as God in the flesh, in the form of God, having the status of God. But Paul tells us it wasn't something that Jesus felt the need to grasp. He didn't feel like he had to hang on tightly to it as if he would lose it. Jesus didn't feel the need to insist on expressing the the glory and the, the rights of all of his divinity. He didn't insist on the dignity or the glory of one who is the king of kings and lord of lords. He didn't stand upon his rights as God on earth. If anyone could insist on their rights... I think we could agree Jesus could be the one to do that, but he doesn't. Jesus was made a servant. As Paul says here, he made himself nothing. Although in the form of God, God in the flesh, he left the gleaming glory of heaven and entered into this world empty-handed. Think about that. Jesus left the throne of the entire universe and was born into this world empty-handed, a helpless baby, a frail helpless baby, literally born into poverty, to a young teen mother, Mary. And he was born in the dirt. That inn in which he was born was was a family room, a, a room attached to one of Joseph's relatives' houses. And it was a room that was most often used where the animals were kept at night. It was filthy, filled with animal refuse, animals all around in the dirt. That's where Jesus The King of kings and Lord of lords was born, not a gilded palace. He was born in the dirt and laid in an animal feeding trough as his bed. When Jesus came that way, he showed us something surprising and and beautiful about the character of God. The character of God is a word who becomes a servant. But he was willing to lay his glory aside, as verse said. He emptied himself to take the form of a servant. And literally, the word there is slave. Jesus emptied himself in the sense of pouring himself out as a slave for our sake. God made visible. Came not high and mighty on the throne. But he moved close. He drew near to where we are. He came into the real situation of our lives and all of its brokenness and its filth and its sin and its dirt. He moved into this world and came in the form of a person who had no rights at all, a slave. Jesus didn't use his, his position for his own comfort, but it reveals something magnificent about the glorious, eternal character of God, the all powerful God made himself a servant of sinners, a servant of betrayers and traitors. Can our world get any more upside down than that? I wonder where the Lord might be calling us to move close to someone, to draw near to someone, not so that we insist on our rights with them, but get close to them, close enough to serve close enough to see what their needs are and ask, how can I help meet your need? Word made servant moved close. Second, the word made servant endured sacrifice to serve. Look at verse eight. Paul says, as a human, Jesus made himself obedient 
to death as he endured the curse of God because of all of our sin. And it wasn't just any death, but Paul says it was death on a cross. Now to us, a cross is beautiful. Crosses are jewelry. We wear them around our necks. We have them hanging on our walls in our home. We even have a beautiful, simple cross here in our sanctuary. They're, they're decorations. They're jewelry. Crosses are beautiful to us. But to Romans who crucified Jesus, a cross meant humiliation. Roman citizens were forbidden from being crucified. It was a punishment reserved only for slaves and terrorists. Because a citizen of Rome had too much pride to let themselves undergo that kind of punishment. It was humiliation, the Romans. But to Jews, crucifixion was a mark of the curse of God. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, any man who is hanged upon a tree is cursed by God, which is precisely what Jesus did. He was cursed in our place for our sin. He sacrificed himself in order to serve us. Who would have dared believe that the one who rules over all would make himself known as a God who loves sinners and betrayers so much that he would suffer and die as a slave so that we would live? But that's who the word made servant is. His love drove him to the cross. His love drove him to you here this morning. It's that same Jesus to whom we're united by faith. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to, to, to have the life of Jesus in us, dwell within us, so that we can live the Christian life in his strength and by his power. Paul says in verse 5, to have this same mind, this same attitude among us as the people of God, as was in Christ Jesus. To have that same attitude among us as a community of, I love to serve, I live to serve. I move close to meet needs, even if it costs me something. I wonder where we are, where you and I are being called to move into somebody's world, to get close to somebody, close enough to attempt to live a sacrificial life to meet their needs, that love them the way that Christ has loved us. Who, who is it that comes to your mind when I ask that question? Maybe it's a neighbor. Somebody who lives next to you, lives down the street from you, and sometimes it's hard to care for your neighbors. Maybe it's a family member. I mean, all of us know at Christmas time, everybody's emotions are on high alert, all the like DEFCON 1 all the time. And loving one another in the family sometimes is hard to do. Sometimes it's the hardest to love the people in your family. Maybe it's someone who's always so critical. And they're just so critical. They're always negative. They're always looking for what's wrong, looking for what they can point out to what's, what's going on or it's going wrong, and it's hard to be around them all the time. Maybe that's the kind of person the Lord is calling you and me to take a step toward that we might endure sacrifice in order to love this person, to care for this person, because Jesus' life is within us. His strength enables us to take that step even when it's hard. Maybe there's somebody that's hard to love because they don't love us back very well. Maybe it's somebody who doesn't listen when they ask for advice and we give it and they never listen. Whoever it is, try to love and serve again because Jesus has loved us like that 
And Jesus has given his spirit to us to empower us to love in the shape of a servant-hearted love. The kind that he has for you and for me. The word was made servant to move near. The word was made servant to endure in sacrifice as he served us. And finally, the word was was made servant and his glory is found in his service. Sometimes we might think or be tempted to think, all right, I'll try this. I'll do it for a little while. I'll be humble. I'll try to get close to someone. I'll serve them for a little while. And finally, soon enough, I'll graduate. It'll all be over. The, the, the job of serving this person, I can move on to somebody else or at least take a retreat. I'll graduate and then I'll get the glory I deserve. When, when I do this sacrificial thing, somebody's going to see it and they're going to praise me. They're going to thank me. They're going to adore me. It's going to be great. And I'm going to be filled up with all kinds of joy because somebody praised me for being a servant. Anybody ever think that? <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one. But that's not the way the Apostle Paul describes glory in our text, is it? He talks about Jesus serving, giving his life, even even giving his death on a cross. Therefore, he is exalted. It was because of his service, because of his sacrifice, because of his humility that he was exalted. The glory through humility shows us what God is like. We see his humility set on display, his glory demonstrated in being being found a servant, a sacrifice, becoming a man to serve us. And the gratitude, it, it it doesn't come from finishing the work. The glory doesn't come from finishing the work. The glory comes from doing the work, rooted in humility. His glory is rooted in his sacrifice. The glory of the cross is one of the most incredible demonstrations of the glory of God man's ever seen. It's tied to his service, tied to his sacrifice. Jesus Jesus didn't graduate from humility in order to get glory, and neither will we. We won't graduate from humility, but friends, joy instead is being found as the Spirit of God frees us up to live in the ways that God designed us to. That is to be servants of one another, to care for one another, to take steps closer to one another. Our glory is in when we serve one another for God's sake, not for praise, not for adulation, not for the thanks that we finally get, but for God's sake. We serve one another in the ways that he has served and loved us. It's before the one who was slain in humility that every knee shall bow proclaim that Jesus' name is the name above every name. Every knee will bow and proclaim that Jesus has conquered through being made a servant. And now he reigns in glory as that same risen conquering son on the throne. And as verse 11 says, one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone, including the evil one himself, will one day be forced to acknowledge Jesus is Lord. The white witch in the Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe had no idea what kind of life was being released into Narnia as Aslan was humiliated and killed. She thought she won. 
She thought the battle is over. Finally, I can be rid of this Aslan and I can have this world be the kind of world I want it to be. Just as the evil one, the devil, thought. Through the crucifixion of the word made servant, I finally won. How wrong he was. St. Augustine, an African church leader in the 4th and 5th century, said this in one of his sermons on Rome, or Revelation chapter 5. He wrote this. The victory of our Lord Jesus came when he rose and ascended into heaven. The lion of the tribe of Judah has won the day. Yet, the devil jumped for joy when Christ died. And by the very death of Christ, the devil was overcome. He took it, as it were, the bait in a mousetrap. He rejoiced at that death, thinking himself death's commander, but that which caused his joy dangled the bait before him. The Lord's cross was the devil's mousetrap, and the bait which caught him was the death of the Lord. I think maybe C.S. Lewis was playing with us a little bit in this scene on where Aslan was on the stone table. And he's tied there with the ropes. If you've read the book, I even have it in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe movie. You see little mice come up and little mice nibble the ropes to free Aslan. It's the devil's mousetrap. And the devil was conquered and Jesus was freed. The word made servant conquered evil for us. The word made servant in his bloody cross and his empty tomb and the now occupied throne is the only way of salvation for anyone who believes. And there is no other way. There is no other way to glory. There is no other way to ultimate life. There is no other way to deep soul satisfaction. It comes through faith in this Jesus, this word made servant who's come for you, to sacrifice for you. Let me ask you this question. Why do we make sacrifices? Why does anyone make a sacrifice that costs them a lot? Why do, why do heroes, why are they willing to risk everything? The only reason we endure sacrifice, especially when it's costly or we have to experience pain, the only reason we do it is because there is no other way there's no other way to get what we need. There's no other way to go the way that we need to go. There's no other way to make the goal except for this costly sacrifice. So it is with God's design for our salvation. There is no other way. There is no other name through which we can be saved other than believing in and surrendering and entrusting your whole life entrusting your whole future onto the life and death and resurrection of Jesus who now sits on the throne and reigns over it all. That same king is coming back. He shall return and we will meet him face to face. Consider, could you imagine standing before the throne on that day when Jesus returns and saying something as silly as, well, Jesus, I heard, I heard somebody tell me about the way of salvation that you had designed, but I thought my way was better. I thought my way to, to glory, I thought my way to satisfaction, I thought my way to being, uh, to being an actualized person, I thought my way was better to get there. Could you imagine 
standing before the lion of the tribe of Judah who is victorious and saying that with a straight face. It's foolish. It's ineffective because God has made a way. He has made a way for us to be reconciled to him, to have life together with him, to see his glory and look God in the eye and know that we are bound together forever. And it comes through the word made servant for you and for me. And so now the Lord calls us to walk as those worthy of his name, the word made servant, as we give our lives to serve those who are around us, whomever they might be, people who come into your path, people who you pursue, serving them as they come around us, and we just might find the, the deep kind of joy, the life-giving kind of joy that fills us up when we serve one another. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you are the kind of God who would take on flesh and serve people like us. Give sinners like us life. Give sinners like us hope and a future. That you would give us the promise of an eternity with everything made right and new, with all wrong judged and put away, and all that's left is what is beautiful and good and right. Lord, you've promised that future for us and you've secured it by becoming our servant. And so, Lord, we give ourselves back to you. We entrust our lives to you. And we ask that your life would be, would take up residence in our souls, that we would serve the people around us as a foretaste of the glory of heaven. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.